You're listening to the preaching ministry of First Baptist Church in Newton, North Carolina. By God's grace and for His glory, we're striving to be a community of disciples who are growing in trust, growing in love, and growing disciples. We pray you'll be encouraged to deeply love and trust our Savior Jesus Christ through this ministry. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Let me, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, your word is true. You have promised that it does not return void. Lord, you want your son to be proclaimed, that your people might be presented to him complete, holy, and blameless, and beyond reproach. And so, Father, I am begging for your help. Lord, I pray that you would work to bring scattered thoughts together that your word would be clear and helpful, that your people would be helped. Father, I pray that you would help me, help us as we listen. And I pray, Father, that you would be at work drawing people to Christ and even believers teaching us to walk in him, to approach you through him. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been studying through the book of Genesis, and I want to remind us that, that we are, in a lot of ways, we are coming into this conversation as outsiders. We are listening in on this conversation. What God is doing in the book of Genesis is He's, he's laying down foundational documents that will shape the worldview and the practices of Israel. He is answering some of the most basic questions of life. Like, who am I? Where did I come from? What's my purpose? What does my life mean? What is right? What is wrong? What's messed up with the world? How's it going to be fixed? What does the future hold? And I want to remind you that we live in a culture that does not want God to answer those questions. We live in a culture that wants to answer those questions for themselves. Wants to establish their own purpose, their own meaning. To find solutions to their problems. Therefore, there's no wonder that there's so much confusion and depression and hatred and hopelessness. It's very important, though, for us to realize that we are, in many ways, spectators to this story. It's good for us to be reminded, us who are Gentiles, those not descended from Abraham, that that first and foremost, this is really not our history. Abram wasn't our forefathers. In other words, it's almost like we're guests at somebody else's family reunion. And we may hear the stories that this family tells, and we may admire their traditions, and we we may have great interest, but... We don't actually have a connection. But as we read through the book of Genesis, what we've been seeing is that there are little hints that are being given, like, like, like little, little bread trail, little hints that reminds us that this, that this God's revelation to the Jewish people faintly but definitely are also for us. That we aren't merely just strangers who are pressing our noses up against the window to see God's people around God's table. But that these promises are for us. He's left us little clues. Sometimes they're faint, but little clues that we too 
Gentiles have been invited into this family. Let me give you some examples. For example, you look at Genesis chapter 5 and you look at Genesis chapter 10 and we notice that, that there are these, these long genealogies. It's good for us to see that God doesn't merely preserve the genealogy of Israel, but He preserves the genealogy of the whole world. We see in Genesis 9, it maybe gets a, a little bit closer, in Genesis 9 where, where Noah in the Holy Spirit makes a prophecy that, that God is going to enlarge Japheth, this, this person who ends up being the father of Gentile nation, it is going to come and they're going to dwell in the tents of Shem, in the tents of the tribe from whom the Jews came. Little delicate trail. But it gets even more detectable in Genesis chapter 12. When, when we are listed as beneficiaries of God's distinct and particular blessing upon Abram. Look at Genesis chapter 12. And verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram. Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. Every Jew hears that and says, that's my story, that's my family, that's my history, God is for me. But then we read this last line in verse 3. And in you, Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And we Gentiles say, wait a minute, that's me. This story is about Abram and what God is doing through the nation of Israel. But he's bringing his blessings through Abram to me. He has a plan to bless me. And in Genesis 14, we get another clue. Another reminder that this story about God and His people is not someone else's family history, but also my family history by means of adoption. L listen to this in Genesis chapter 14. Then after His return, I'm in verse 17, speaking of Abram. After His return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer Amir and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He, Melchizedek, blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of all. I'm going to work to have you not turning everywhere this morning, but I quickly just want to review where we went last week, what we saw so far in Genesis 14. We meet Melchizedek. We learn that he is a king, that he is a priest. We see that his name means the king of righteousness. We see that he is the king of Salem, that is the king of peace, particularly the king of Jerusalem. And we will note that in a book full of genealogies, Melchizedek appears from nowhere. No family line. No, no, no mother and, and father. We noticed also that his position of Abram, if his, his relationship with Abram is one of superiority. That in this relationship between Abram and Melchizedek, Melchizedek is the senior. 
We see that Abram is the patriarch. He's the one who's been given the promises. He's the father of the Jewish nation. We saw last week, I tried to explain, he's a George Washington, Chuck Norris, Captain America, and Billy Graham all rolled into one. And in this text, he is the hero. But I want you to notice that in this text, Melchizedek didn't come out to meet him after this great military victory with gifts for him, but rather he came out to receive a gift from Abram. So we think about this is exactly the opposite of what we could imagine. We can imagine if, if, if there are soldiers returning home from a great military victory, that the people who would be meeting them would be meeting them to honor them. But we see exactly the opposite in this. Here's Abram, the patriarch, the great one of the Jewish nation, who's coming out, having just completed this massive military victory, he comes out, and instead of being honored, and he honors He's the one, as it were, who bows down in front of Melchizedek and receives the blessing. And he pays Melchizedek a tithe of everything that he has captured in this war. And here's the big takeaway. As great as Abram is, there's someone even greater. But then as quickly as Melchizedek appears on the scene, he's gone again. And we don't hear about him. For hundreds of years until we get to Psalm 110. Now you can turn there if you want, but you don't have to. In Psalm 110, we see this is a Psalm of David. We saw this last week. The Lord says to my Lord, we see just like with Abram, that David is speaking. David, the premier king of Israel, is speaking of someone who's coming after him. And it's like this. It's as if, it's as if David pulls back the veil. In Psalm 110, and lets us look into the future. And we look into the future and we see that God is going to place a king. A king who's higher than David on his throne. And this king is going to rule. But then in verse 4, it gets even better because we learn that this king at God's right hand is more than a king. That he's also a priest. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, I think we can go to Hebrews chapter 7 and really pick up where we left off last week and see why all this matters. Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 1 through 28. And I think what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read it piece by piece as we, as we go through. Because together it is uh, fairly overwhelming, at least it is, to me. Look at verse 1 through 3. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem priest of the Most High God, who met Abram as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abram apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, which is the king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. We notice he's not in the Jewish family tree, which... It gives Gentiles like us incredible encouragement. Some think that this means that only that his genealogy wasn't recorded in the book 
of Genesis, that his death wasn't recorded in the book of Genesis, that he doesn't have a family tree that's written. Um, Other people think that that what the writer is saying is that he doesn't have a family tree. He didn't have a father. He didn't have a mother. And he didn't have a death. I really lean toward the second. But either way, the the point that the writer of Hebrews really wants us to see is, is this, that he is completely outside of Abram's family. He's greater than Abram and the whole Jewish line. We saw this last week, but we see this in verse 4. Now observe how great this man was whom Abram, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people. That is from their brethren, though these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes. But in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abram, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Let's be clear what's what's being said. The writer of Hebrews wants to make it crystal clear to us that Melchizedek was greater than Abram. And he's greater than than the whole line of Israel's priest. The the, the Levites were Israel's priests. You remember I said last week that Abram had a son who had a son, had 12 sons, 12 different tribes of Egypt, uh, of Israel. One of those those tribes, the Levites, was where the priests came from. One of those tribes, Judah, was where the the kings came from. And so we have the Levites are serving as as Israel's priest. And, And they inherited that office simply by being born into that family. And we know that they're highly honored. We see this in verse 5. Because all of Abram's descendants paid tithes to them. But then we see in verses 6 through 10. That that here there's, there's... That it's as if the tribe of Levi was making, paying tithes even to Melchizedek, so that Melchizedek is greater than even the tribe of Levi. And you see what he's saying. In the ancient mind, the father was always greater than the son. So that if you had a family reunion, for example, and you had, you had four, four generations of one family, that who's going to be seated at the seat of honor? It's not going to be the youngest in the room. It's going to be the oldest in the room. And so then we have, if Abram is paying tithes to Melchizedek, how much more are his descendants paying tithes to Melchizedek as great as they are? Now, this is where this gets good. Now, I have to move quickly and leave lots of stuff untouched. But in this text, at very least, I want you to notice that the writer of Hebrews has Genesis 14 and Psalm 110 in his mind. And as he looks at those texts, he's saying that the importance of those two chapters in the Bible simply cannot be overestimated. Remember why he's writing to the, to the Hebrews. Here we have a group of, of, of Jews who have, who have lived their life seeking to obey God through the Old Testament law. But then Jesus came. They see Jesus. They see his life. They see his death. They see his resurrection. They hear the preaching of the apostles. And they, and they trust in Christ. 
And, and they, they, they trust in Him as their Savior. So they're no longer keeping all the Jewish customs. They're no longer seeking to please God by obeying the Old Testament law. They're no longer bringing animals to the temple to be sacrificed for their sins. They're no longer eating kosher. They're no longer keeping the Sabbath. And because of that, they're facing incredible persecution from the Jews... And they're thinking about returning to all their Jewish practices. And the writer of Hebrews, who's, who's pinning this sermon to them, is saying, no, don't go back to the old way. You're doing the right thing by sticking with Jesus. Don't go back to the Old Testament law. Don't go back to making sacrifices. Don't go back to going to a Levitical priest in order to be your mediator between you and God. No, trust in Christ. And here's why. Because what you have now in Jesus is better what you had in the Old Testament laws and in the Levitical priesthood. Look at verse 11. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not to be designated according to the order of Aaron? Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that if Levi was so great, then why in Genesis 14 and in Psalm 110 did God promise a better priest? But then, and this is where it really starts getting good. There's, there's, there, there's, there's so much here. But I simply want to just focus on three things. And I'm going to move through these things fairly quickly. So that we can hopefully settle in and see how this relates in real life. So first, I want you to see from this text that you need a priest. Secondly, I want you to see that Jesus is a better priest. And then thirdly, let's learn to live with Jesus as our priest. First, you need a priest. I'm going to give you four words. Every single human being listening to this, whether you're, whether you're a small little kid or, or you're at the very end of your life, you, you know these words very, very well. You may not like it, but you know these words. Hear the words shame, guilt, regret, fear. We know them. We hate them. We'll do whatever we can to escape them, to avoid them, to alleviate them, to deny them anything, to get away from them. Some of these things are self-imposed. Some come from people. Some are totally bogus. Some are absolutely way misguided. Many in our societies are masters at using them to exploit us and manipulate us. But there is a kind of shame, a kind of guilt, a kind of regret, a kind of fear that is absolutely legitimate and is used by God to point us to even deeper realities. Can you imagine, for example, a world where people did not feel shame or guilt or fear or regret? You don't want to live in that world. You don't don't want to do business with those kind of folks and you certainly don't want to be married to them. But, But what concerns us Today is that before God, genuine shame, genuine guilt, genuine regret, genuine fear remind us that we have a genuine problem. And the problem is this, that that, that we have a dirty record before a God who hates our dirt. Therefore, same people try to fix this. I was in Malaysia a couple years ago, and we went to a, to a very famous Hindu shrine called Batu Caves. There's this very steep incline up this mountain 
272 steps, steep steps, up this mountain. And we noticed that people on their bottom were buying food, buying cases of food, heavy cases of food, heavy cases of milk, heavy cases of all these different drinks and fruit juices and fresh fruits. And they were carrying them up those steep steps. I mean, it's hard to imagine how, how tall this thing was. 272 steps carrying these things. They would get to the top and they would pour all of that food out. They would pour the milk out or the juice out. And what they were, what they were hoping to do is, is somehow to atone for their sins through their pain and sacrifice and the cost it took for them to buy this food that they really couldn't afford and then the pain of carrying up those, all those steps. Other people do basically the same thing with all their apologies and promises and bargains with God and their, all their religious activity hoping to do something that will good to make up for all the bad they've done. But here's what I want you to see. God's solution, though, was priests. Priests who would stand before God, as it were, as a mediator between God and men. And he designed this process to be quite vivid. Here's a priest in the temple. People who knew their sin would bring with them animals. Unblemished animals. High quality animals. Cute animals. And would bring those young bulls or goats or lambs and come to the priest... And the priest would receive that animal and place that animal on the altar. The, the, the person coming to make the offering would, would lay their hands on that animal's head and begin confessing their sins. And then the priest would slay the animal. The animal would die so that this person might be forgiven. The imagery is incredibly clear. The animal's life instead of mine. My guilt... It's death. It bleeds and dies. I'm forgiven and live. If that sounds sad, it was sad. It was this visual shocking reminder that it would not be safe for me to stand before God Almighty with my dirty record. I need forgiveness. Therefore, I need a priest. Here's, here's something that the writer of Hebrews wants to bring out. If Abram's children, if, if Abram, we're talking about God's chosen people, if they needed a priest, how much more do we need a priest? The second thing I want you to see in Hebrews chapter 7 is that Jesus is a better priest. Look at verse 11. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not to be designated according to the order of Aaron? Imagine how vivid, how shocking a sacrifice like the one I just described would have been. I vividly remember as a little kid, when I was growing up, every time we had the Lord's Supper, we would sing a song about the lamb who was slain. And I went home one Sunday afternoon, and we always had, had uh, Sunday afternoon lunch with my grandmother. 
And, and I, I was asking her, what does it mean about this lamb being slain? You have to understand, I was a little kid who owned a goat, and I love that goat. I love that goat more than you love your dog. I, I, I love that goat. And so having this idea of this animal being killed really troubled me as a little kid. And my grandmother, I vividly remember exactly where we were sitting when she put me on her lap, and she explained this to me, uh, what I just explained to you about people coming confessing their sins and how th- that Jesus was the ultimate lamb. And I'm telling you that my heart, heart was absolutely broken not for Jesus but for that little lamb imagine confessing your sin and having that animal die right there before your eyes now you would think if you saw something like that you would say I get it my sin is terrible God I'm not going to do this anymore but the writer of Hebrews wants you to see that, that that sin is so ingrained in you that you need more even than that you need something, you need something that, that's able to help you deeper than that. Because that thing, as vivid as it is, as terrible as it is, is not enough. It's not enough to get perfection. If perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, then why in the world, the writer of Hebrews says, is God talking about in Psalm 110 of another one who will come of, of a higher order than the Levitical priest? Verse 19 says it exactly right. For the law made nothing Perfect. Sacrifices might make you feel bad. After you've done them, sacrifices might make you feel better. But either way, they can't fix us. And that's why the writer of Hebrews is so excited. The writer of Hebrews looks at the problem facing God's people. Here are, here are Jews who have not yet trusted in Christ, or even the ones who have trusted in Christ and tempted to go back. But here are these people who are trying to get to God through sacrifice. They're trying to get to God. They're sincerely wanting to get to God, wanting to please God, wanting to do the right thing, hoping to get there by sacrifice. But under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he reads Genesis 14, he reads, Genesis, he reads Psalm 110, he sees a life in the ministry of Jesus, his perfection, his death, his resurrection, and he says, God has provided a solution to our guilt problem that It's better than the Levitical priesthood and the whole Testament law. Again, look at verse 11. If perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not to be designated according to the order of Aaron? And here's the answer. There wouldn't be a need. But there was a need. Because the very best that the Levitical priest could do wasn't nearly enough. The very best that the whole law of God could do was not nearly enough. And the writer of Hebrews says, but God has met our need in Jesus. Look at verse 12. For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes a, ch- a place, it takes place a change of law also. It's not just the priesthood has changed. The whole law has changed. The whole way of approaching God is being changed. And I want you to see, he's saying this is very clear because the Old Testament law didn't allow kings to be priests. Kings came from Judah. Priests came from Levi. But notice what's happening here. He's reading, he's reading Genesis 14. He's reading Psalm 110. And he's, and he's saying that those passages are pointing us to the future when another priest will come of a higher order who is both priest and king, the order of Melchizedek, the one who is priest and king, the one who didn't come from the line of Levi or the line of Judah, that Jesus is a totally different type of priest, one who is way better. Look at verse 13. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one is officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, A tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priest. And this is clear still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, 
who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Verses 18 and 19 begin to hint at just how big of a deal this is and how really how good of a news this is. Look at verse 18. For on one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Then in verses, in verses 20 through 22, he says Jesus is superior to the Levitical priest because of their, the nature of their appointment. Verse 20, inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for it they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath, through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The Levitical priests were born in their office. Jesus received that office through an oath of the Lord. The Lord himself swore, he says in verse 21, quoting Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn. You didn't receive this by being born in this. No, the Lord placed you there and he will not change his mind. Jesus, you are a priest forever. And notice that just like Melchizedek, Jesus is never going to retire and he's never going to die. Look at verse 23. The former priest, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Now, I feel like this is so thick. But, but I hope that it's all coming together in verse 25. Look at verse 25. Therefore, he... The superior priest, the one who's coming from a, a superior line, from, from all the way outside the law, who's coming in who cannot die, whose priesthood he didn't receive by birth, but received by the very swearing of God, who's been promised to have his priesthood forever. He says in verse 25, Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for him. I, I hope that you're, you're seeing the point. There are all kinds of ways that people over the last 6,000 years have tried to fix the problem with their sin, their guilt, their shame, their regret, and their fear. The very best way ever revealed was by the Old Testament law, but sin was so ingrained and so stubborn that even that failed. But God in his mercy has raised up a new way which by the way was the way even before Abram it was it was the original way but he's raised up this new way which is that it predates even the patriarch of Judaism and he is perfect he lives forever he's been appointed by an oath of God he's able to say forever those who draw near to God through him because he's living forever to make intercession for them now Look at verse 26. For it is fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, 
But the word of oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. So here's, here's, here's the question that the writer of Hebrews wants, wants you to ask yourself. If, if, I have, if I have Jesus as my high priest, who, who is perfect, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who doesn't need to make a sacrifice for his own sins. He doesn't need to bring the blood of bulls and goats, but he brings a perfect offering of himself. If you have him, why in the world would you go back to this weak, pathetic, Levitical priesthood and this Old Testament law? Any other way to approach God? Now, here's where we can get very practical. I, I want to I then ask a question. What practically then does it look like for me to, to approach God through Christ and not by any other method? So, you need a priest. Jesus is your high priest. Now, let's learn to live with Jesus as our priest. First question. Are you tempted on days when you wake up early, you read your Bible and you pray and you feel you really you really feel good about your family, you're really sweet to your family, really kind to them, you don't lose your temper, you, you plan kind things for them. On your way to work, you see an old lady trying to cross the street, you help her cross the street, you get to work, you do your job, you accomplish something, you avoid temptation that day, and, and even you get to share the gospel at lunch. Are you tempted on those days to feel closer to God? Or, or to at least feel like, today, God loves me. Today, God is pleased with me. He's happy with me today. But then, on days when you're lazy and you oversleep, or you look at your phone too long, and you, and you waste time in the morning, and you don't, you don't read your Bible, and you're cranky, and you're short with your kids, and you're short with your husband, you see the old lady, but you don't want to help her across the street. You go to work, and nothing works right, mostly because you're not putting your whole heart into it. You have a perfect opportunity to share Christ, but you don't share Christ. You just don't feel like it. You don't resist temptation. Are you tempted in those days to feel like God's totally disappointed with me. Now we need to notice what's happening. We need to notice that you're trying to be your own priest. You're, you're trying to approach God by your own merits. No, no you, we have to learn to approach God through Jesus. Therefore, verse 25, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Yes, there are things that we can do that please the Lord. Yes, there are things we can do that grieve the Lord. But if I am in Christ, and I am coming to God through Christ, there is nothing that I can do to make God love me more, and there's nothing that I can do to make God love me less. Let me, let me show you how, how, how serious he is about this. Look back to Hebrews chapter 4. He's speaking of the, of the Sabbath. And he's saying that in the Sabbath, in this Old Testament, this Old Testament observance of the Sabbath, that actually we have, we have God preaching the gospel to us. He says, he says in verse 9, So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, just as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that 
rest. If you're resting in Jesus, trusting in Jesus as your high priest, you don't have to worry about your status with God. That's exactly what he says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 21. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Jesus, you are a priest forever. So much more. Also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. So, so that the heart cry of every single Christian is, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress, filthy, foul, helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior, or I die. This means there's no longer working to earn God's blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So here's what I'm saying. There is a difference between bringing your wife flowers in order to buy her forgiveness or to buy her affection. That's very different than bringing your wife flowers simply because you love your wife enjoying flowers. Let me give you a few examples from the other side. Here weighs a tale that, that you're not approaching God through Jesus. Number one, your obedience makes you proud. And you find yourself looking down on those people who don't get it. Which shows that you're the one who doesn't get it. Or, here's another one, you hold yourself and others to traditions that are not specifically prescribed in the New Covenant. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 12. For when the priesthood is changed, obviously we have a different priest. We have a whole different set. We have Jesus as our priest, not Levitical priest. Well, that means there's a whole change in the law. And we saw that. There must be a change in the law because Jesus would not lawfully be able to be a priest because he's from the tribe of Judah instead of from the tribe of Levi. There's been a whole change of the law. We need to see this. There's been a change of the law. Look at verse 18. For on the one hand, there's a setting aside of a former commandment, Because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there's a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Look over to Hebrews chapter 8 verse 13. When he said a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Look at chapter 10 verse 1. For the law, since it's only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very former things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Examples of this abound. All these rules, all these laws, some of, them, some of them from the Old Testament, some of them just that we make up ourselves. Some of them, that's our tradition. But, but these laws that we try to use, and if you keep these laws, you're pleasing to God. And if you don't, then you're, then you're second class and you're not pleasing to God. And that may be what you wear to church or how many times you go to church or, or, or what kind of Bible you take to church or whether or not you can have a glass of wine or whether or not you have to be involved in this program or that program. This is extremely serious because Galatians chapter 5 says, That if you're seeking to be justified by law, then you're fallen from grace, severed from Christ. Number three, even as a Christian, here's another way you can say, am I getting this or not? Even as a Christian who's supposedly trusting in Jesus, if you feel like there's a dark cloud hanging over your head, and that God is somehow waiting to get you, there's just this cloud of his disapproval hanging over your head. You're, you're, not, you're not yet getting it. I want you to see this is a lie. 
He says in Romans 5, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. He's able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him. Number four, your obedience to God is a chore. You're not getting it. You're not getting it yet. If, if, if you come to Him and you, you're resting in Christ, here's what He says, you've taken my yoke upon you and you've learned from me, you'll find that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let me give you one more. This is so important. Here's another way to know. You're not getting it yet. You're not coming to God through Jesus. You do your best to obey. You keep the rules, whatever, whatever. You open the Bible, you're seeking to do what God says. You give yourself generously to the work of the gospel. You keep yourself sexually pure. But then the wheels fall off your life. You don't find a spouse. The spouse you find is a complete jerk. Or maybe you get a good spouse, but you can't have children. Or maybe you'll have children and you get cancer. Whatever the case may be, in that moment, you, you find yourself crying out, God, this is how you treat me after all I've done for you? Do you see what's being exposed in that? You're saying with the psalmist in Psalm 73, in vain I have kept my heart pure. You're showing that you're still approaching God as if, as if you are earning His love and that, and that your obedience then, then, then means that, that you deserve something better. It can't be earned. Or maybe on another way I can say, it, it, it must be earned. In fact, it was earned, but it wasn't earned by you. It was earned by Jesus. So stop trusting your ability to earn it and trust that He has earned it completely for you. Here's what it looks like. It looks like waking up every morning before you reach for your phone and check out CNN and how many corona cases there are. Instead, reminding yourself of the gospel. The, the gospel of Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25. Therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus, you are a superior priest. Jesus, right now you are praying for me. You lived the perfect life and therefore you brought the perfect sacrifice. My feelings go up and down but you are able to save forever those who draw near to God through you. I am afraid of falling away someday but you are able to save forever those who draw near to God for you and I certainly need it. Lord let me list the ways that I need you to be a priest for me. Let me list the ways that I need you praying for me. Let me list the ways that I have displeased you even in the last 24 hours. I desperately don't deserve your love. I desperately need your love. And I believe that I have your love. But I'm not, I'm coming to you through 
Jesus, Father, today I want to live like I'm yours. I want to live like I'm not on the outside looking into this family reunion. I, through Jesus, have been brought in to this family. I am yours, and today I want to rest from my work. I want to rest from trying to establish my goodness, and I want to be a part of the work that you're doing to set up Jesus as king. And I want Jesus to rule over my neighbors and my church and my family. Lord, would you please cleanse my conscience from dead works? I might serve the living and the true God. Amen. You need a priest. Jesus is a better priest. He's a perfect priest. Let's learn to live with him as our priest. Let me pray. Father in heaven, I pray, Lord, that that you would take this word... Father, I pray that you would drive it. You know exactly where we are seeking to establish our own righteousness. You know exactly where we're trying to earn your favor. Lord, you know exactly where we feel proud because we feel like we have earned your favor. You know exactly those areas of our life where we feel like we deserve better than what we're getting because of all the good things we've done. Father, I pray that your word would be like like a heat-sinking missile, find those areas. Father, I pray you would explode them until we come to you through Jesus Christ alone. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the First Baptist Newton Podcast. If you want to learn more, check out our website at newtonfbc.org. We'll see you next time.